Good afternoon. Welcome. My name is Michael, and I serve as one of the pastors of the church. It's so good to be with you this afternoon to open God's Word together. James started last week with a question. He said, who is wise and understanding among you? Another question this afternoon, chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I asked my two-year-old daughter that question earlier this week as she was throwing a tantrum. I don't know if you've ever wondered, why do toddlers throw tantrums? Have you ever thought about that? If you're a new parent, the thought has surely crossed your mind. I'm afraid we may have taught our daughter that her name is you, because when she doesn't get what she wants, she points to herself and she says, you, you. Like earlier this week, I told her to stay downstairs. She wanted to come upstairs. She said, you, come, you. Um, You know, we asked our pediatrician, transitioning from one child to two, any advice, and he said, well, just, you just need to give a positive affirmation. No negative affirmation, you know, nothing negative. So never say no to them, always say yes. I'm not sure he's read this text before. But, of course, with toddlers, it's comical. What about in marriage? Conflict between your spouse. Not so funny anymore. We get in these patterns, for those of us who are married, patterns of conflict. It's almost like the same topics bring up the same emotions. You can almost rehearse the same argument over and over again, just with different words. What's the cause of it? Perhaps you're thinking you don't know my spouse very well. Maybe your spouse is thinking the same exact thing. The results, of course, are sad. There's distance created in the relationship. Some marriages, as we know, end in divorce. Irreconcilable differences. Perhaps it gets even more serious when we think about conflict between countries, different nations. World War II was a horrible war. Many people debate actually the cause of it. What what led to World War II over 60 years ago? Some say it was because of a worldwide economic depression. Others argue it was the militarization of Germany and Japan, or the impact that the Treaty of Versailles had. Whatever the cause, the result Cities completely destroyed. Families torn apart. 75 million died. Now, as you think about conflict, what would the reason or the explanation you would give be for why conflict exists? Because James is actually going to tell us this afternoon 
that those three topics, though very different, toddlers and marriages and world wars, they all actually all have the same source for why they happen. His answer might surprise us. My main point this afternoon is simple. By God's grace, humbly repent of spiritual adultery. By God's grace, humbly repent of spiritual adultery. And I have three questions that I think James is going to help us answer this afternoon. First, he's going to answer the question, what's our problem? What's our problem? Then he's going to answer the question, what's God's response? How does God respond to our problem? Lastly, he'll show us how should we live? How should we live? What's our problem? Look at it in verses 1 through 5. To give you a little context, if you maybe missed last week, James talked about in verses uh, 13 through 18 of chapter 3, there's wisdom from hell. It's filled with jealousy and ambition. James says, don't boast about this type of wisdom. Then there's wisdom from heaven. This is pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. James says, show this in the meekness of your wisdom. Show it. But if we look at verse 1 of chapter 4, there's not peace in the church. There's fighting in the church. Their passions are at war within them. It's interesting, you know, the, the letter of James is written to Christians who are dispersed, likely because of persecution. Many of them are poor. James says their problem, the one he chooses to address, is their conflict with one another. You know, I was 11 years old, over 20 years ago almost, when I witnessed my first true conflict in the church. My parents were out of town, so some friends drove us to church that Sunday morning in Kansas City. The deacons had secretly fired the pastor. He didn't show up to preach that day. They read a letter on behalf of the deacon board announcing that he had resigned. Imagine a situation just like this. Yet, as they read the letter of his resignation, a member stood up in the church and said, that's not true. That's not what happened. You guys fired him. It was crazy. I remember this vividly. And a debate ensued. A few members stood up defending the pastor. And the deacon said, hey, here's what we're going to do. Why don't we take a vote this afternoon? Those of you who want to re-invite the pastor back, you come and say yes. Those of you who are fine with this, um, you say no. So we went home. My parents were called, of course, by other members of the church. And they wanted this pastor to say they thought he was wronged in this decision. So those same friends picked us back up. Myself, 11, my sister, 13, my oldest sister, 15. And we sat there and voted to reinstall this pastor who had just been fired. The vote lost and the church split. 
You might wonder, how could a church split like that? What would lead to that? James's answer here is that there's a war within every church member. There's passions in every church member. Are you aware of that? If you're a member of this church, a professing Christian, are you aware that even in you, there's a war, a battle going on? Now you might think, well, I don't fight like that. I would never stand up and yell at somebody. We actually fight in different ways. Some of us give each other the silent treatment. We have a more passive form of anger. Others of us will resort to raising our voice, yelling and screaming. And when we think about the problem, often when we're in conflict, we rarely think the problem is us, right? Or else we probably wouldn't be acting the way we are. We often think the problem is our circumstances. It's the driver who cut you off. Maybe we think it's the other person. If this person at work would just get their act together, we wouldn't have any problems. I confess that I often think it's my spouse. If she would be different, maybe we wouldn't have conflict in our marriage. Or you might think it's the kids. They just need to obey. If they would just do what we say, maybe you think it's your boss at work. I've not met your boss. You know how bad they are, and if I met them, maybe I would agree, but James actually points our direction away from all outside circumstances. He says the passions are at war within you. James is saying your passions rule you. James is talking about self-worship. You worship yourself. One theologian from the 16th century, John Calvin, he said, you're an expert in inventing idols. Self-worship, another word for idolatry, where we give our worship to someone or something other than God. It could be power. Maybe that's the thing you crave if you just had more power or approval. If everybody just liked you, or comfort, if you could just sleep enough and eat the right food and just have an easy life and go on the right holidays. Maybe your idol is a more Christian version, like helping other people. You love being the person that people depend on. They need you. That fuels you. It could be the reverse. You need somebody else in your life to rely on. You need somebody to support you, to care for you could be achievement. You just need to keep doing better, to keep doing more. Or materialism. The list goes on. You fill in the blank. You could fill in the blank for your own version. James says it's because of this that there's fighting in the church. He goes on in verse 2. He says it's because of desires coveted in the heart. And look what happens. You murder. Desire here actually leads to death. Now there's a couple options for what James could mean by murder. One is that it's possible during this time that zealots, or as we would call them today, 
terrorists had become Christians and they were members of the church. Some commentators speculate perhaps they had turned back to their old ways and they were murdering each other. It's possible. I don't think we should discount that. Another option could be James is referencing what his older brother Jesus talked about when Jesus in Matthew 5 equated hatred of your brother in your heart to murder. Either way, whatever it is, James is rebuking them. The, the, when he talks about coveting, of course, we know that's the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. And sometimes we think about coveting as wanting other things that aren't ours. But it's not simply that. To covet is to desire out of a lack of contentment in God. Desiring out of a lack of contentment. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually is going to connect with us coveting and idolatry in Colossians 3. He says, put away all covetousness, which is idolatry. It's the same thing. How do you know if you're coveting? How do you know if you're committing that sin? Well, I think James might say, how do you respond when you don't get what you want? What do you do? Because in this situation, when the church members didn't get what they wanted, what did they do? They fought one another. They quarreled with each other. There was conflict. But James also says, the reason this is all happening is in verse 2, it's because there's no prayer. There wasn't prayer in the church. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. Could it be that some of the reason there's conflict at Covenant Hope Church is because we've failed to pray for one another? You see, a lack of prayer actually reveals something about our hearts. What does it reveal? It reveals pride. It reveals that we are dependent on ourselves, not reliant upon God. And surely, James is referencing what our call to worship actually was in God's providence. Ask, and it will be given you. But James adds a little something to that. He says, yes, ask, but when you ask, you're actually asking for the wrong motives. Your prayers are selfish prayers. It's not that just you're not praying. When you do, it's all about you. You ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. And this is important to remember. It's not just passionate prayer that reveals dependence on God. It's not just prayer without ceasing that shows that we are relying on God. We also need to ask what we pray for. What do you pray for? We also need to ask who do you pray about? Because if your prayers are just filled with prayers about yourself, James is saying God's not going to answer yes to those prayers. He's not a genie. And in many ways, this is where the prosperity gospel, which is preached all throughout this city, goes wrong. It treats God like a genie. Just take your selfish prayers to him. If you want a better job, if you want a better car, if you want a better house, if you want a better life, if you never want to get sick, just pray those things. 
What would James say to that? And here's the climax of James' rebuke in verse 4 and 5. You adulterous people! Many of us wonder even, is this appropriate to say this? Should you be saying this to another Christian? It's offensive, at the least. But could it be true? Marriage is the most profound human relationship that exists. One flesh, a man and a woman coming together. And it's amazing, in the Old Testament, God's covenant relationship with his people is referred to as a marriage. He weds them. In the garden with Adam and Eve, there was a perfect union. They walked together perfectly. But Adam and Eve committed adultery. They believed the lies of the serpent. They ate of the fruit of the tree. Then we get to the next book of the Bible, Exodus. The people of Israel delivered from slavery to Egypt. Free at last. And then they commit adultery. A golden calf in the place of God. In fact, the last book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, God's last words to Moses were basically, Moses, you're going to die and the people are going to go commit adultery afterwards. Adultery is the most profound betrayal. It's a breach of trust. It's tearing apart a relationship. It's a betrayal of love. Jeremiah 3.20 says, Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. Hosea 9, 1, Rejoice not, O Israel, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. And Israel's adultery was not just a one-time incident. It was a persistent pattern. And it left us, as the reader, if you've read your Old Testament, leaves you thinking, will they never learn? But that was Israel. We must ask the question, aren't we different? Let's look what James has to say. In verse 4, he says, do you not know? Don't you know this? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. James is equating something here. He's saying, if you even desire friendship with the world, think about it. He's not talking about complete immersion in the world or even identification with the world. James is saying, if you just wish it, if you just wish that you were better friends with the world, what is that? It's enmity with God. You see, there's some dangers to the church in persecution where Christians experience suffering, pain, threats, even death for the name of Jesus Christ. On the other side, there's dangers in seduction for the Christian. The world is tempting us. 
It calls out to us, be just like us. Be friends with us. But it's important, too, as Christians, to think carefully about what worldliness really is. Worldliness isn't necessarily makeup and dancing or music and movies or wearing certain clothing or going on holidays. But worldliness is when sin looks normal to us and when righteousness looks strange. Now I realize many of us do want a list of rules. We want to be told, give me the line of which song should I listen to? What, is, what are the correct bands to play? Or how much makeup is too much? Or when we think about jewelry, how much is too much? Dancing, what types of dancing? Clothing, which types of clothing? We want a list, but James wants us to ask the question, what do I love more, the world or Jesus? And are the things I'm participating in, whatever they may be, are they stirring my affections for Jesus? Or are they stirring my affections for sin, for the world? And let's notice here, James is saying it's very clear, actually. You can either be a friend of the world or a friend of God. You can either be an enemy of the world or an enemy of God. There's only two ways to live, and Christians, we must choose. And I hope you see this. Earlier, James was saying, you guys are fighting with one another. You don't realize you're actually fighting with God, too. You're an enemy of God. In verse 5, he, he reminds us, this is a theme throughout the whole Old Testament. God is jealous for his bride. He cares deeply about his exclusive relationship with Christians. So a summary of James' problem, if he were to ask that question, what's your greatest problem, and give an answer, he wouldn't say it's economic. Your bank account. He also wouldn't say it's political in the proper political leader or the right election. He even wouldn't say, it's your health. And COVID-19 surely has confused many of us about the priorities of the problems in our lives. Is it health or is it our sin? What's the greatest problem we face? James is saying, it's rebellion. It's your spiritual adultery. It's your enmity with God. Now, if you're not a Christian, let me ask you, how do you think God should respond to us? What's God's response? That's the next question I want to answer, and his response is surprising. His response is amazing. Many of us think the gospel is, be good. Don't be bad. Just be a better person. Work harder. Do your best in life. You need to earn it. Or just don't worry about all that. Don't think about death. Don't think about heaven or hell or what happens in the afterlife. Or some people would say the gospel is 
God loves us and he accepts us at no cost to himself. But the Bible says the gospel is that we're so sinful. We're so stained by sin. We're broken people, sinners and sufferers, even adulterers and murderers. You know, the Old Testament left us wondering, God's bride, can they ever change? Will they ever get their act together? The New Testament opens with Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, come for his bride. Would you show up on your wedding day if you knew your spouse would commit adultery every day? Jesus came for sinners, murderers, whether you've killed others in your heart or you've just done it or you've done it with your hands, you know. Excuse me for a second. Jesus came for adulterers. Maybe some of you have committed adultery. Really, betrayed your spouse. Maybe you've just lusted in your heart. Jesus came for you. <sighs> Jesus came for those who don't have their act together. Friends, that's good news. What did he do? He came to die on the cross to pay the price for our sin, to take God's wrath in our place. And then he rose from the grave and he ascended to the Father and we await his return. Christians, we're longing for that day, the marriage supper with the Lamb. He's taken us Christians. He said, you were not God's people and he's made you his people. He's taken that cold, adulterous heart of yours, and Christ has made it soft and obedient. He's taken your hatred and turned it into love, your enmity into peace. This is what verse 6 means, but he gives more grace. More grace. That's how God responds to our sin, with more grace. It's grace for Christians. Oh, Christian, if you're, if you hear me today, you need God's grace today. Not just when you first became a Christian. And guess what? God wants to give you more. Does your life reflect your need for more grace? It's tempting, even after we become Christians, to act like we have our act together to live self-righteous lives, to start portraying that our works are actually what are keeping us in God's love. It's this fake outward appearance of holiness. We don't need that. We just need the gospel. We just need God's grace. It's also grace for the humble, James says. He, he quotes from the Old Testament, from Proverbs, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you're not a Christian, oh, would you humble yourself? You can't fix your desires. You can't fix your relationships. 
You surely can't fix the enmity that you have with the God of the universe. What can you do? You can get down low. Don't resist. Give it all up for Jesus Christ. Go to Christ and receive his grace. God's response to our problem of spiritual adultery is more grace. This is amazing grace. The last question to consider this afternoon is how should we live? How should we live? Verses 7 through 12 are packed with commands. There's 11 commands in these verses. You might think, well, we've just been talking about grace. Why is he then saying you need to do some things? This is gospel living in action. Because God loves you so much that he refuses to leave you where you're at when you first become a Christian. The first thing James says is in verse 7. He says, submit to God. Who's the master of your life? Who's the king of your life? Who's the Lord? If you're a Christian, it's not you any longer. It's God. And especially because he's gracious, James says. You know, in the church, the the elders lead the church. Myself and five other brothers, we lead the church. The church is actually called to submit to the elders. But notice this. The elders and the church both submit to Jesus Christ. There's only one king of Covenant Hope Church. It's not me. It's not Mark. It's Jesus. We do this together. The next things James says, these are just, these are packed. He says, resist the devil. Resist the devil. You know, the devil's goal since the garden, it's been two things, spiritual and physical death. He leads a demonic army. There's a spiritual war going on. And what does he do? He tempts Christians. We're his targets. And our job since the garden, since Adam, has been to guard and to keep, to refuse his lordship, to flee his temptations. And look at that promise in verse 7. He will flee from you. If you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. It's because he's not all powerful. He's limited and finite. And guess what? If you're a Christian, Satan is defeated. Christ crushed his head on the cross. And the devil's day of judgment, of final judgment, is coming. Resist the devil. But also, James says, don't just do that. Seek God. Verse 8. Draw near to God. So bury yourself in the Bible. Now, for busy moms here, you're probably finding it difficult to spend time in God's Word. And as dads, we need to help you out. We need to provide some time and some space for you to have moments with God. Cry out to God in prayer, not those self-seeking desires we saw earlier, but prayers about God, prayers to God, prayers to get to know God. Families, we need to be consistent in family devotions, spending time in God's Word, 
drawing near to him together as a family. Now, this isn't legalistic, but let's be consistent. It doesn't have to be long, but it can be just like little drops in a bucket, slowly drawing near to God day by day by day. And fathers, it's our job to lead in that. We need to lead our families as we draw near to Christ. Be present at public worship. I said it to you. You're already here. Just show up to church corporately as a church. We do this together. That's why every Christian needs to be a member of a local church. Because this gathering, on this day, this is the most important gathering of our week. What's the promise that James says? An amazing promise. He will draw near. God is the God who's near. Don't you want this? Don't you want God to draw near to you? If you remember the story of the prodigal son, the son spoiled his inheritance. He left his father, left his family. Yet, when he returned, how did the father respond? The father ran to him, hugged him, kissed him, threw him a party. This is how God responds to sinners when they draw near to him. Now I realize some of you, some of you probably don't feel like you're close to God. Maybe some of you have never really felt an intimacy, a connection with God. And others of you on your worst days, you doubt if God's presence is real. You need to remember something here. God keeps all his promises. And if you don't feel God's nearness now, I can guarantee you on that day when Jesus returns for his bride, you will feel God's nearness. Jesus told us some of his last words to us were, I will be always with you. But even as we seek God and we grow closer to God, we also see our sin more. James next says we need to kill our sin. He says, cleanse your hands. Look at verse 8. Purify your hearts. He's talking about both outward actions and inward motives. This is repentance. Now, there's a false form of repentance. It's only feeling guilty inwardly or only acting sorrowful outwardly. The Pharisees, of course, were excellent examples of this. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but the inside, your heart is rotting. Judas is another example of false repentance. He felt so sorry that he even killed himself. Yet he never turned back to God. And notice these phrases James brings up again. You sinners, you double-minded. James maybe even calls us back to remember Lot's wife, who left Sodom, but turned back. She wasn't in Sodom physically, but that's where her heart was, and she was destroyed. We're double-minded often. James says there's two ways to live, and as a church, this is one of the reasons we need to rebuke and admonish one another. Because each of us still feels the presence of sin in our lives. We do this with love, of course. We do this with gentleness. But we do it for the sake of our brothers. 
True repentance, one author said, is exchanging your idols for God. It's regret for sin. It's also a clinging to Christ. This is inward, of course. But then it's outward, too. It's ceasing from sin. And it's not just ceasing from some sins or certain sins that you're okay with ceasing from. It's ceasing from all sin. You might think, why do we need to do all these things? I thought you were talking about the gospel. But before this, what precedes all these commands? It's grace. This is actually what grace produces. I I love what one um, early church father said. He said, God gives what he demands. Now there's a danger with repentance too. Some of us have made repentance a work. We know that sin has no power. We know there's no penalty for Christians, but we're trusting in our repentance, not in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's only the blood that wins God's pardon. Do not idolize repentance. Focus not on yourself. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. One, uh, one Puritan, he said, do not rest upon this that your heart has been wounded for sin, but rather that your Savior has been wounded for your sin. We need to walk in repentance. James says in verse 9, we need to lament our sin. Now, many of us, we don't do this. How do we respond when we're caught in sin or when somebody confronts us with sin? We deny it. We delight in our sin often. We defend it to one another. That's not what was really going on there. That wasn't sin. Or sadly, we just don't even think about it. We rarely think about our sin. But if we knew what the Bible said about sin, sin is dishonoring God. It's despising God. It's wearying God. It's breaking the heart of God. It's crucifying Christ again. So James says, be wretched. Mourn, weep, turn your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. The world conditions us and says, sin is it's not that big of a deal. Everybody does it. We're all human. So just, you know, try to be not that bad of a person. And even as Christians, there's a temptation to think the Christian life is all joy, it's all grace, it's all celebration, it's all laughter. James is saying that's true, but not for sin. Christian, I wonder, when's the last time your eyes were swollen from weeping for your sin? Pray for this. Pray that your heart will be broken over your own sin. Church, We need to pray for this. We need to pray together that our hearts would be devastated when we sin against our God. James next says, humble yourself. Verse 10, humble yourself. There's definitely false humility that's at play in many of our lives. It's really pride, undercover, hiding. It's the humility of the Pharisees. It's the appearance of humility with a focus on what others will think about our humility while we're thinking about how humble we are. This is not what James is talking about. James is talking about thinking about ourselves 
in light of God. He says it's humility before the Lord. Every good gift is from God. To cultivate humility in your heart, be gra- have gratitude on your lips. Thank God for the things he's done in your life. And be desperate in your dependence on God. You know, other ways to do this are with one another. Are you a person who receives help from others? That's humility. Are you a person who serves others secretly? Maybe you serve others in ways that nobody will ever know about. It's just between you and God. That's humility. Humility also identifies God's grace in other people's lives. Are you quick to encourage your brothers and sisters with how you see God at work in their lives? There's another promise here, James says. It's a promise of future glory, and he will exalt you. This is incredible. It's an ironic reversal. If you humble yourself, if you get down low before your God, what's he going to do? He doesn't leave you there. He exalts you with his son, Jesus Christ. We suffer now, but glory is coming later. It's guaranteed. Lastly, how should we live? James says, verses 11 through 12, speak no evil. Notice here the shift. He's gone from adulterers, then he called them sinners, then double-minded. Now he says, brothers, it's possible today. We're sinners, and yet we're saints also. We're brothers in Jesus Christ. Now quarrels and fights surely are spurred on by sinful, evil words. Words of criticism. Words of condemnation. James is alluding here to Leviticus 19. It says that you shouldn't go around slandering people. You shouldn't slander your neighbor. What's happening when you slander? When you speak evil or judge, you're condemning your fellow Christian. You're actually not being humble and getting low. You're placing yourself above them. You're actually even placing yourself above God and above his law. And James says in verse 12, who's God? He's the lawgiver. He's the judge. He's the savior. And then he turns the question on us in verse 12. Who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? So our words, the words we use to one another in the church, are they to build up or are they to tear down? Are they seasoned with grace or are they seasoned with sin? Are they words of condemnation, words of discouragement, or are they words that encourage others and give them grace? This is what it looks like to live out the gospel in the church. So let me ask you today, have you responded to God's grace by walking in humble repentance? Perhaps you have conflict in your life right now, an unreconciled relationship. Do you need to go to a brother or sister today after the service and ask for forgiveness for sinning against them? If you do that, that's God's grace at work in your life. That's you recognizing that God is so gracious that you can actually be honest about your sin. If you've been coveting in your heart desires unmet and they're driving you to fight people, there's grace for you. 
If you've been double-minded, maybe you've been going back and forth, back and forth between the world and God, there's grace for you in Jesus Christ. And this grace, it creates a church, not of perfect people, but of repenting Christians. A church that's submissive to God and to his word. A church that resists Satan, fights Satan, because we know what's coming for him. A church that draws near to God because his nearness is found in Christ. It's one that repents inwardly and outwardly and laments the horrors of our own sin. The church is a humble people, awaiting exaltation, one that speaks no evil and builds one another up. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it's by your great grace that we come to you. Please, Lord, make us a people who humbly repent from sin and spiritual adultery. Lord, we pray for more grace in our church. We pray for more grace in our own lives. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.